Believe it or not, Democrats can still win a majority in the House of Representatives. Here's what it looks like. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I am delighted to welcome to the show David Beard, who's a contributing editor at Daily Coast Elections and the co-host of The Down Ballot, an outstanding podcast about, I know, wait for it, elections. And he's also the purveyor of some really informative Twitter information. I know that's oxymoronic. I'm actually getting useful, insightful information from Twitter. It happens if you're following someone like David Beard, which I am on Twitter. You should too. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you because we get to talk about like you're saying there's a chance. I know I'm quoting from Dumb and Dumber here, but you are literally saying, and, and there's an article up on Daily Coast about this right now titled Democrats could still win a majority in the House you're saying there's a chance. You admit right up front that it's not the biggest chance in the world, but there's a chance. So could you walk us through that? How big a chance and what does it look like? Sure. I think it's a narrow chance, and I think it relies primarily on the later arriving ballots out on the West Coast being somewhat more democratic than the ballots that have already been counted, which is something that is possible. That's something that we saw happen in 2018, where the late arriving ballots, which tend to be younger, were also more democratic. It's not something that happened in 2020, but obviously 2020 was sort of an unusual year because so many people were voting by mail because of Trump's antics around voting. What we saw is actually the vote was either neutral or actually more Republican leaning in 2020. But if the late arriving vote is more democratic in these Western states that are still counting mail ballots and ballots that were dropped off on election day, there is a, a real chance. So I can just run through sort of briefly the sort of key races that are still really unclear about who's going to win and what will end up determining that majority. That sounds great. So, so if I get the thesis here, the, the core idea is for one reason or another, you're going to see a late vote. If this works, it's because we're going to see a late vote in Western states that skews young. And we know that Gen Z voting, like basically age 18 to 29, based on CNN exit poll data, skewed heavily toward, I think it was plus 28 for Democrats, according to CNN. So it would skew heavily toward Democrats. And maybe younger voters kind of got their stuff together a little bit late in the process, got their ballots out, their mail-in ballots kind of late. And so we'd see a skew in that direction. So if that holds, here's what it looks like. All right. So let's, I know most people don't like to listen to math. If you don't want to wonk out, this may not be the show for you, but I'm super duper interested. Let's, let's walk through it. Sure. So to start off, there's some races that haven't been called yet or, or no one's conceded, but are basically very clear who's going to, to win one side or the other. Obviously, surprises happen. That's why they haven't been called yet, but they're, they're pretty much put away. So I'm not going to go through all of those. But if you assign those out, plus what's been called or uncompetitive, you end up with the Republicans having 215 seats that they should be set in, and then Democrats having 212 seats they should be set in. And what you need for a majority is 218 seats. So that leaves eight seats that are not clear who's going to win at this point. And Republicans would need to win three of them to get a majority, and Democrats would need to win six of them. So obviously, Democrats do have the, the tougher road because they have to win more of these toss-ups than Republicans do. So I'll start just in alphabetical order. So the, the first two seats 
that are still up in the air are in Arizona. It's Arizona's first district where Democrat Jevin Hodge is taking on Republican David Schweikert, who's this sort of very scandal-plagued incumbent Republican whose seat is now slightly more Democratic because of redistricting. So Hodge is actually up there. He's up by 1.6 points, 1.6 percentage points, with about 86% of the vote in. And that's entirely in Maricopa County. So we're just waiting on those Maricopa County sort of daily big vote drops to come through. The big question is, are those vote drops you know, going to be a little bit more Republican leaning because they were mostly mail ballots dropped off on E-Day? Uh. And the E-Day e vote, you know, people who actually go in and vote on Election Day, particularly in Arizona, extremely Republican. Mm -hmm. The mail vote, extremely Democratic. So the sort of unknown question here is like, if you had a mail vote and you went and dropped it off on Election Day, is that because you're a mail voter who's just running late? or an E-Day voter who just thought it was a little more convenient to go ahead and fill out the mail ballot ahead of time. And that's something that's sort of very unknowable at this point. You just have to sort of wait for them to finish their counting. But I do think Hodge has a real chance to, to win that seat. And that would be big because that would be a pickup. Because right now, Republicans have picked up enough seats from Democrats to take the majority. So we need to pick up a few of these seats that are Republican held to, to even that back out. So that's one Arizona seat. The other Arizona seat is Arizona 6. This is in the Tucson area. Kristen Engel is the Democrat. It's an open seat. She's currently down two percentage points with about 76% of the vote in, but she has been closing. The biggest county is, the, is Pima, which is where Tucson is. And she has been closing with the ballot drops that have been coming from Pima. There are other counties there that are more red, but they're further along in their voting. So it certainly seems like she could continue to close. There are more Pima ballots out there. Whether or not there are enough ballots, that is a big question because it's not like she's, it's not a few hundred votes, it's a few thousand votes that she needs to make up. So it is, it is a real margin. And this would be big because this is a seat that was held by Democrats before redistricting. Ann Kirkpatrick is retiring. The seat got more Republican and Democrats sort of all but gave up on it. There wasn't a lot of outside spending in the seat. And so to be able to come back and, and you know, if we were able to hold that seat, that would be absolutely huge for this sort of narrow, narrow path. And then we've got three seats in California. Obviously, we all know California takes a long time to count their votes, and sometimes surprising things can happen as that goes on. So there's just a lot of uncertainty around the California votes. So first off is California 13, where Democrat Adam Gray trails by a very, very narrow margin, just a few hundred votes, and only estimated 58% of the vote has been counted. So there's tens of thousands of vote out there, and that one is pretty much purely a toss-up. There's no way to know, you know who's going to win that seat at this point. The next California race is California 22, where Republican incumbent David Valadeo is currently leading his Democrat challenger, Rudy Salas, by about eight percentage points. But there's even more vote left there. Only 43% of that vote has been counted. Mm. And more of the vote outstanding is in the Democratic county there than in the two Republican counties. So that will close whether, obviously, 8% is a lot. So whether it will lot. get all the way there, you know, we'll have to see. But in 2018, that seat, this, the predecessor seat before redistricting that Valadeo represented in 2018, he was ahead and lost ground and lost ground and lost ground to TJ Cox, the Democrat in 2018, and did end up losing to TJ Cox. So we do have precedents there for that happening in that seat. Valadeo, of course, won it back in 2020. So it's a very seat that's, that's gone back and forth a lot. And then the last California seat is California 41, which is in Southern California, where 
Incumbent Republican Representative Ken Calvert has just taken a narrow lead over his Democratic challenger, Will Rollins. But again, there's a bunch of votes still left out. We only think about 53% has been counted. Calvert is up 1%. So that's also very up in the air. Calvert represented a pretty Republican district previously. And in redistricting, it added Palm Springs, which obviously has a lot of Democratic votes. So that's made the district more competitive. So again, all three of those California races, it's just really hard to know where that's going to go. You know, Republicans currently lead in all three, two of them extremely narrowly. So if, if Democrats can get those late votes coming in and can, can pick up a couple of those California seats, that would go a long way. So before we go any further, it sounds like a lot here up in the air, but, but I think what I heard in all of that is there's a reason you can create a thesis for any of the let's call it four. I, I I'm I'm are, are we are we putting Hodge in Arizona one in kind of the win column at this point or the likely win column? I would say he's more likely than not. I wouldn't say he's firm enough to like stop looking at the race, but I, I would it. guess more likely than not he probably holds on. So out of the five that you just listed, you, you can kind of put a thesis together for any of them, but it it does seem like it's a bit more of a stretch for some. It's like, wow, you got to overcome eight points. That's a lot. We've seen that movie work out before, but it's still a lot. On the other hand, you have a, a situation like California 41, where, where Will Rollins is down by less than half a percent. You could really see that. So there are some genuine coin flips going on so far. And the reason I'm pausing you here is I think you're about to hit the one that has probably gotten the most national attention and will continue to. Am I right? Yes, yes. And that's the one where the vast majority of the vote has been counted. The big difference with all of these races the in Arizona and California, which we talked about, and then in Oregon and Washington, which we're going to talk about in a minute, all of those states still have a ton of vote to count because there's so much mail votes that come in late. That is not the case in Colorado. Colorado has counted the vast majority of their vote in Colorado 3, which I'm sure many people know Lauren Boebert represents, this sort of very far-right, crazy Republican. Adam Frisch is her Democratic challenger. He led for a long time after election day. She has narrowly, narrowly taken the lead by just around 1,000 votes, give or take. And the big question is we just don't know if there are votes outstanding in places. There are certainly some provisional ballots that may or may not get counted. Mm. but that could be just a, that could be in the hundreds we we just really don't know obviously if there aren't a lot of batches of votes anywhere she will probably hold on because the, these these last few batches gave her a, a small but real lead but i wouldn't count it out entirely just because there's still things we don't know for sure at this point got it so i, I want to circle back to that one because it leads to a fascinating conversation well I don't know. I don't want to oversell because we want to talk about recounts, but I think it's certainly fascinating because the whole balance of power could be in the balance. Do you want to just hit Oregon or round out here and then and then we can circle back? Sure, sure. So the last two seats is one in Oregon and one in Washington state. In Oregon, Oregon's fifth district, the, the Democrat Jamie McLeod Skinner trails by just about 2.4 percentage points, but that has been closing. There's about 84% of the vote in, so a lot of the vote has already been counted, but there is still enough vote out there that she could close. I think that one, that one I may say is 
behind sort of the Colorado situation, that one may be the least likely of us to get there because there's there's still votes, but there's not a huge amount of votes like some of these Arizona and California seats. But there is still still a path if narrow. And then the last seat is Washington's third district, where the big Trumpist candidate, Joe Kent, defeated the Republican representative who had voted for Trump's impeachment. And he's facing Marie Gluskamp Perez, who is leading by 2.2 percentage points. Again, a lot of the vote left, only about 70% of the vote has been counted. So we're waiting on a bunch of significant vote drops there to see. But she is ahead. You know, being ahead at this point is better than being in behind. So, and that would be big because that's a pretty R district in the terms of competitive districts. It, it is definitely R leaning. So for her to, to pick that up and particularly against somebody like Kent, who's pretty, who's pretty extreme, pretty Trumpist, that would be really good, both obviously for the chances of the majority and just in general, not having somebody like Kent in the house. Wow. It's, it's really remarkable to me. It's always remarkable to me when elections come down to these kinds of insanely narrow margins. And then when the entire balance of power in the U.S. House comes down to these kinds of margins. So it sets up two things that I definitely want to talk about. Let's talk recounts first. First of all, how much stock should we put into recounts and specifically into the possibility of a come from behind in the course of a recount? My impression is that it's relatively rare. My experience as a campaign manager is when you start to look at recount scenarios, it's like, look, if you're down by by any number that's that's greater than, I don't know, a couple hundred, you you really shouldn't you really shouldn't bank on it. But but you look very closely at the data. What's your impression? Yes. So I think there's sort of two different categories of recount. So a small number of races every year will go to some sort of recount. Each state has different rules around it. But generally, it's something like if the race is within a half a percent or a percent, something like that. Within that group of recount races, most of those recount races are not going to see a change in the winner, barring an error in the in the tabulation. Like what we've seen on very rare occasions, you know, in a recount, you'll see that like, oh, this box of ballots was missed, or oh, these two numbers were transposed, and it should have been a 1,000 votes for the Democrat and not the Republican. So that's, for a lot of races, that's what the recount does. It double checks to make sure that there wasn't sort of significant error that could cause the result of the race to change. But again, so that's, most recounts are like that. And then obviously, in most of those cases, they're not going to find a big error. So you shouldn't expect a change in the outcome of a recount. And I would say I don't, 90, 95% of recounts is, is my best guess. Then you have the sort of small percentage within a small percentage of races where the margin is less than 100 votes, or maybe in like a big statewide race, less than 200 votes, but like really, really small margins, something like 0.05% margin, 0.03% margin, where you're talking tens of votes. And those are the situations where an actual recount could affect the outcome. And so that's why I say like Boebert's currently ahead by about a thousand votes, even though it's a narrow margin, it's like three tenths of a percent. If that's what the final result is, there may be a recount, but I would not expect the recount to change the results overwhelmingly. If the result ends up being like Boebert leads by 20 votes, then you really look to a recount and you think this really could change the result of the outcome just by recounting the ballots. Because 
in almost every system, there's a there's a few systems that primarily the ones that are electronic that do the electronic counting, where you don't really have a significant change. But in most systems in America, there is a record, obviously, of the ballot, and the ballots go through in these really tight recounts and get hand hand reviewed, and they will find some number where the machine read it wrong or somebody made a mark that would have invalidated a ballot or, or made a ballot real that wasn't counted by a machine or something like that. So the vote numbers will change, but the the issue often is that the vote numbers don't change consistently and to favor one party or another. So if you have a hundred votes switch around, but it ends up being like 60 new votes for one candidate and 40 new votes for the other candidate or something like that, that's not gonna change the outcome most of the time. So you have to get those incredibly tiny margins to have a recount matter. So right now, I wouldn't say any of the races are in that sort of recount margin where you'd actually want to track the recount. But obviously, like I said, there's still a ton of vote to count in most of these races. So we'll have to see where they end up. Well, you do end up very rarely in these super exotic situations. Now, for people of a certain age, you remember the 2000 Bush v. Gore Florida recount, which was a real through the looking glass moment in America for people who track these things closely. And that was a situation where it's exactly what you just described. There was a significant change in the vote. Of course, you had a massive volume of votes because it was a presidential election and it was Florida, a giant population state. So you, you saw some significant movement as you went through the initial recount, but it was because of some really quirky effects about the machine reading of punch ballots and hanging chads and all kinds of stuff that if you're a Gen Z voter, you're like, Matt Robeson, what the heck are you talking about? Choose Chad. You can Google it. <laughs> I, I commend that to you for your Googling enjoyment. Very, very rarely, you end up with a situation like the 1975, well, it turned into 1975. It was the election of 1974. The year I was born in New Hampshire, Durkin versus Wyman for the U.S. Senate, where ultimately they couldn't figure out who had won the election because the margin of error in the counting process was greater than the margin of victory. And you, you sometimes find that, that no matter what recount process you use, there's an error rate with hand recounts. People make mistakes. People, they mean to say a, and they write down B. They switch things like, like you just said. And so there's always going to be a small error rate. And you don't know if, that it's going to favor one side or the other, unless there's some exotic thing going on, like the hanging chads, but occasionally it does. And what they ultimately determine there is we will never really know a winner because there's no way to limit that error. Every time we do this, there's going to be more error then there is going to be margin of victory. And so we'll get different results. It's unknowable. And in, in 1975, what they ended up doing was just holding a brand new election because they could not work out what the ultimate result was. I'm just throwing that out to all of our listeners and viewers because it's kind of fun, I guess, it, but it, it's sort of nightmarish, but it's also kind of, that is the potential territory we could be heading into if the margin in the house stays this narrow, where really a couple of seats could determine who holds the majority. David, you were just saying that based on the count right now, it's looking like 215 for Republicans, 212 for Democrats, and out of the remaining nine races, Democrats would have to win six in order to win the majority. So there's a path you, you laid it all out. It's not super wide, 
but it is there. Let's talk for a second, though, about the scenario where it doesn't break strongly one way or the other, and we end up not with what we thought was a super narrow margin that Democrats have had over the last two years of five or six seats at various times, one or two, and and where that margin could be subject to recounts, legal challenges. What do you anticipate? What would the dynamics of that kind of situation look like? Sure, it would be really, really fascinating to watch from an outside observer. I would not want to be a Republican leader or a Republican staff member charged with corralling the Republican caucus in the House to pass anything really at this point if they end up with the margin this narrow. But you know, we'll see what they can do. I think there's a few questions there. To start off, like the possibility that there's a recount or some sort of vote challenge which means that there is potentially one or more seats that are not resolved by January 3rd when the House meets, means that there's not a member seated at that point. Because if you don't have, you know, from the state a certificate or, or sort of an official recognition of, of who won that race, then no one would be seated. There is, this is an extremely unlikely possibility, but theoretically you could end up with like 217, 217 and one seat where a winner has not been decided by January 3rd. And at that point, you would be thrown into total chaos because the House couldn't elect a, um, a leader, assuming that everyone stayed in their camps. You need a majority to, to elect a speaker. And so the House would really struggle to function. There would, there would need to be some sort of temporary compromise power sharing agreement, which we see in state legislatures sometimes, where there's even an, an, either an even number or some other situation where you know, both parties have an equal number of seats and they do come up with a power sharing arrangement. They split the committees, trade off days of who runs the floor. The idea of that happening in the House of Representatives is just absolutely wild because I cannot imagine the two caucuses working together, but that would be what's required. But that's that's really, really unlikely. More likely is that one of the two parties and probably the Republicans ends up with a very narrow margin. Now, Democrats have you know, worked with a narrow margin over the past two years, usually of five seats. They've had a, a margin of five seats. At times it's been four seats because we had lost a, a special election earlier in the summer and then won it back with the Alaska special election in August. So there was a margin of four seats for a while. But the, the key to that sort of narrow margin, I would say, is having Nancy Pelosi leading your caucus because she's not perfect, but she has some really, really good qualities. And one of those is like leading and unruly caucus of Democrats, keeping them together, getting the votes whenever you need the votes. Like one of the things, Nancy Pelosi has been leader for 20 years. And one of the things you can count on is if she, she says she has the votes, she has the votes, even if it's very narrow. So the Democrats have been remarkably successful during that time period of a narrow majority. Does Kevin McCarthy have those qualities? I'm not sure. And is Kevin McCarthy gonna be the leader of the Republicans come 2023? Not sure, because there are definitely Republican representatives who are not a fan, who are going to make noise about getting somebody else. And the narrower the margin is, like the speaker needs 218 votes, assuming everybody votes, to become speaker. So you can't have five extremist MAGA Republicans deciding they want to, you know, vote for Donald Trump or, or somebody, somebody else to be the speaker because they don't like Kevin McCarthy. That would end up with a Democratic speaker if it splits 216 votes for a Democrat. 215 votes for McCarthy and like three or four votes for crazy Republican guy like that ends up with a Democratic speaker, at least temporarily. 
you have to assume the Republicans would eventually get their act together if they have a majority, but there's just a lot of questions out there. And then there's the actual governing part where let's say you have a two or three vote margin and you've got, you know, Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania, who is a very establishment Republican, votes with Democrats on some issues, voted for things like the infrastructure bill. And then you've got like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's out there saying, who knows what, voting against everything. Like, can you get them to, to vote together on things beyond just sort of procedural Republican House votes, like anything of substance? Like, where do they agree where you can get them to pass something? I can... First of all, co-sign your point about Nancy Pelosi. I think that's a great insight. One of the things I experienced as a congressional chief of staff during her first run as speaker is that she was always very good at corralling the caucus. The dynamic among Democrats in the early 2000s was this real split between a much more robust, moderate faction that existed at the time and what we'd now call a progressive faction, I guess at the time we called more of a liberal faction. And Pelosi was the leader of the liberal faction. Steny Hoyer was the leader of the moderate faction. And we saw them have a couple of tussles for who was going to assume leadership. Once Nancy Pelosi got that position and Steny slotted in as her number two, it became a pretty cohesive leadership structure. Jim Clyburn has long held that, that third position. They do work as a cohesive team, and they have been remarkably good at corralling Democrats. And they always, when I was sitting in inside the room, literally in the basement of the Capitol meetings, they would drag all the chiefs of staff together, and they would they would say, look, here are the things that Republicans are about to try to skewer us on with procedural motions, with gotcha amendments. And here is why you cannot let your boss slip on these things, even though it is going to be painful. We will have your back in the upcoming election, but you cannot slip because then we lose control of the leadership of the House. We lose our majority in that moment. And then it's utter chaos. They, they have a good job. They've done a good job at this. And Democrats are used to that kind of a structure. So I agree with you. That is a major strategic asset if that scenario comes to pass in Democrats' column. And the major demerit that Republicans have going for them is they are nowhere near that cohesive. And there are already rumblings and, and real reporting out that the knives are out for McCarthy. And there are Freedom Caucus members who are trying to extract concessions from him, including resurrecting the motion to vacate, which essentially gives them the ability at any time to have a vote of no confidence in their own speaker, remove him and throw the house into chaos. So I think the, the scenario where there's a tie, while extremely unlikely, is very interesting. We actually do have models of that from the state legislative level. A member of Congress who I worked for 20 years ago actually was the one-year president of the Maine State Senate in a power-sharing agreement with a Republican counterpart that worked remarkably well. They, the Democrat was president for a year. The Republican was president for a year. They split the, the committees evenly. They actually had a remarkably productive session of the legislature. I agree with you. There's no way I see that happening in the U.S. House. It also opens up some, some truly strange possibilities because there's no requirement that the U.S. House has to elect a member as speaker. So you could, in theory, see a, a, a scenario where they say we can't agree 
between McCarthy and Pelosi. So we're going to go outside the box entirely. Oprah will be Speaker of the House. Don't aggregate that. I'm just spitballing <laughs> here. Some consensus figure. I don't know. Probably not Oprah. So anyway, super duper interesting. Let me throw you another curveball. In addition to the challenges that Republicans have remaining cohesive and corralling the House Freedom Caucus, what do you make of the statistical factor, the what's the, what's the word I'm searching for, like the actuarial factor that since 1973, in the, in the 40 years or so between 1973 and 2012, 69 members of the U.S. House of Representatives and 15 senators died in office. We saw that with longtime House member Don Young in this last session of Congress. We saw that with another Republican member of Congress who unfortunately died, wasn't all that old. She died in a car accident. This does happen statistically more than once in every session. How much of a factor is that going to become? Again, potentially, it's one of those interesting situations where the margin here really ends up mattering. And that's one thing we obviously still don't know, both obviously control of the House. And is this going to be a, a two-seat majority or a five-seat majority? Mm. What we've seen is if, if Republicans end up with something like a five-seat majority, I think that throws a lot of the legislative stuff into chaos. But there probably won't be too much trouble in terms of like actually holding on to the majority in terms of pure numbers, both because the people leaving the House or the Senate, it tends to stay you know, pretty even on both sides, both obviously through people passing away. That's one, one way. People also will resign either um, to take another job sometimes, you know, sometimes to take a job in the administration. That would be obviously Democrats in this case. For Billy Towson, and you want to go from regulating the pharmaceutical industry to lobbying for Yes. Like yes. that. Or scandal. We obviously see scandals. scandals from time to time, too. That might be a little more Republican than Democrat, I think. So- People do leave the House. That's I don't think there's ever probably been a two-year term of the House where, where all 435 members stay the entire two-year term. That's my guess. Um, and so that will happen. There will be special elections. There will be months, sometimes three months, sometimes nine months, depending on individual states, where one or more seats are vacant. And so if the majority is one or two seats, that really matters. You know, If there's like two Republican vacancies and one Democratic vacancy at a time, and the margin was only one vote, then the House is, is back in a tie. So that is certainly something that will really matter if we're in the one, two, maybe three seat majority. One thing that's already out there is that Representative Garcia from Illinois has mm. announced a run for mayor of Chicago against the incumbent Lori Lightfoot. And so if he were to win that Democratic primary and then obviously win the, the election for mayor, uh, presumably whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to win that election in Chicago, he would have to resign his seat. That doesn't take place for months and months, obviously. But in a situation where Democrats have a, like a one seat majority, that's already come up. People are pointing out like, can you can he really responsibly run for mayor like he was planning if there's a Democratic one seat majority? So it certainly turns into a big factor, the narrower the margin is. Well, we're not suggesting that this is a scenario like that movie Swing Vote from 2008 with Kevin Costner, where for some crazy Fakakta cooked up reason, the entire election comes down to one dude. But there are some really weird things. And it sounds like what you're saying is they start to happen if you get into the like less than three seat majority zone. And we could easily be there. So there, there are plenty of outcomes we could have. Small, medium chance of Democrats holding on here, holding on to the majority in the House. Much more likely chance that Republicans do, but a very real chance that we end up in this 
zone. If Democrats hold the House, it is going to be by like one of those one or two seat majorities mm -hmm. and all kinds of what could start to break loose there. Final on the House, I, I mean, I, I'll I'll give you one, and then any any final thoughts that I, I want to do. I want to do the Senate real quick before we we break. But you know, one thing that I've written about, I wrote an article about this in Newsweek about six months ago. That close really matters, and one of the things that happens, you were talking about how hard it is to hold together a fractious caucus in a narrow majority. One of the things that the minority can do in the House is lob procedural motions at you that make your life incredibly difficult and that also create hard votes that you have to take. And so if you've got members of your caucus, if you've got Republicans, say, that are in relatively swingy seats that are emerging from some of these super close elections, you can throw all kinds of stuff at them where they have to take tough votes on issues like abortion, immigration, hot button issues that, that really matter to voters. And that becomes a whole other thing. That's that scenario I was just talking about where it becomes a vote by vote scramble to keep your majority together. Even if you get through that first vote, if you've got a one or two vote majority, if you get through that, you still have to refight that battle every day because you could lose on these amendments. You could lose on these procedural votes and both substantive bills and procedural matters could get thrown into chaos. You could have short-term periods where Democrats kind of in a de facto sense wield the majority. That's what stands out to me. Any other final thoughts on, on the House? Sure, I think a couple of things. One more on the sort of practical side of what next year is gonna look like and then one on, on the actual results. On the governing side, what I think will be interesting to see is what Republicans do around proxy voting because mm. proxy voting is still allowed in the House. It's something that Democrats implemented during the pandemic and has continued. They recently extended it through the end of this Congress into the end of December. And Republicans, they like to criticize it. They think it's this terrible thing and some Republicans have said, but a lot of them have used it. And one of the things that proxy voting does is it makes it a lot easier to run a caucus because people, you can just be like, a lot of people are out, but they've all sent in their proxy votes. It's a lot fewer people to corral. You know, it's just a lot more streamlined. Nobody ever misses a vote if they can just proxy vote it. Right. But Republicans, who I think the idea before this was that they were gonna maybe end the proxy voting if they took the House, now has a big question to, to answer in terms of, are they going to keep it and try to make their lives a little easier? Are they going to get rid of it and make it so that they have to make sure that every single one of their members is in the building and voting every time there's a vote that matters. Actually, and I'll just add a, a tiny wrinkle to build on that. It is super interesting in that regard that a lot of these super, super tight races that you listed off at the beginning are in the West. And so that becomes a factor logistically when everyone starts to smell jet fumes on Thursday afternoon because they so desperately need to get and want to get back to their districts, their families, their campaigning, their lives. And so you lose people. You lose you lose people to illness. You lose people to logistics. To, to I just have to catch a flight all the time. And you're right. That's, that's super fascinating. And we've seen similar things already happening in the Senate, where obviously there was a, essentially a one-vote margin with, with Vice President Harris as the tiebreaker, where votes were occasionally held open for hours to wait for the final senator's plane to land and for them to get there, or if they had something that they had 
already been at, they were holding open votes to get that last vote in, which is what happens when you have that margin. And then on the results overall, I think one thing to take away is that when the House is often in a larger margin, the big thing was the popular vote. If, if one party wins the House by five points or whatever, they're going to take a majority of seats and that's really it. In this sort of extremely narrow margin that we've come up, you see some, some very small things that normally wouldn't decide control could potentially decide control. And I want to point towards two things. One, trial courts found that states should have additional African-American seats where African-Americans should get the opportunity to, to elect a member that they prefer. One ruling in Alabama and one ruling in Louisiana, both of which would have added second majority or, or plurality Black seats that Democrats probably would have won. The Supreme Court stopped both of those rulings and is probably going to strike down large parts of the Voting Rights Act that led to those rulings. They already heard the case about it. So, so there's a good chance those two states never get those two seats. But Judges decided that they should have gotten those seats under the Voting Rights Act. And so that would have been two seats for Democrats, probably a third seat. Florida is under like sort of a different lawsuit process, but a, a, a seat in North Florida was also basically eliminated. That was, you know, a Black opportunity seat. So probably net three seats out of that. And as we see, that could easily end up being the margin. And then in New York, New York Democrats passed an aggressive gerrymander. It was struck down by the New York top state court by a 4-3 margin, you know, by some very conservative judges that were appointed by former Governor Andrew Cuomo, nominally being Democrats in some cases, but being very conservative in terms of how they rule. They ruled against the gerrymander, despite obviously other states having Republican gerrymanders. And despite a state like Ohio, their Supreme Court ruled against the gerrymander, but they just went ahead and used it anyway and were basically like dared the Supreme Court to stop them. But in New York, what ended up is a special master drew the map and we've ended up with a lot of competitive races in New York, a lot of which Democrats are unfortunately losing, which partially is the map. Partially, there were obviously problems for Democrats in New York, but that combination probably lost Democrats three or four seats, which again, in a situation like this, could be the majority. Is the bill still going to come due on Ohio? At some point, is the Supreme Court going to have to weigh in on that? Well, that was that was probably decided at this election. And the there was a 4-3 Republican majority on the Ohio Supreme Court, but one of the Republican justices was a lot more moderate. She was the chief the, justice. The chief justice, right. Yeah. And she was siding with the Democrats against these gerrymanders that the Republicans were, were pushing through. She was retiring. And unfortunately, we, we tried to win that seat or two of the other Republican seats that were up. Republicans held all three of those seats. I would expect the new, more emboldened Republican majority on the Ohio Supreme Court to give their mark of approval to whatever the Ohio Republicans want to do in gerrymandering going forward. I also expect there to be a ballot initiative. One was passed previously that ended up being sort of a compromise that has clearly not worked in terms of redistricting. I expect a much more stringent redistricting ballot initiative to come potentially for 2024 in Ohio, um, because I think clearly the people who were pushing the previous ballot initiative recognize that it has failed. And in fact, the chief justice wrote that if this keeps happening, voters may need to go back to the ballot box to actually get the fair districting that they that they voted for previously. So there's already been calls for it. I would expect that to take place. We, we've seen it work in Michigan. Michigan was very gerrymandered. It passed, a, passed an initiative to fix the gerrymandering, the redistricting process. They had a fair independent redistricting process this cycle. And with ungerrymandered state legislative maps, 
They took back the state legislature by narrow margins and will control the Michigan state government for the first time in, I think, 40 years. There is something karmically interesting about the fact that while it's bitten Democrats before to go to independent commissions to, to some degree because they don't get outcomes that are so much in their favor, it is interesting that they benefited from the independent commission in Michigan and their attempt at an aggressive gerrymander in New York kind of backfired a little bit. Before I let you go, obviously the other set of elections that we're all watching are in the U.S. Senate. It's coming down to Nevada, Arizona, and maybe if those two aren't dispositive, Georgia, what's standing out to you there? How are you feeling about our prospects in those three? I feel very good. I, I think Democrats are more likely to hold the Senate than Republicans are to take the House. And as we already said, Republicans will probably take the House. So I'm really feeling good about Democrats holding on to the Senate. In Arizona, Senator Mark Kelly has a pretty comfortable lead. I would expect that to be called within a day or two. I think there's not really any path for Blake Masters to come back. The margins are, are oh, it's over 100,000 votes. There's only, I think, there's less than 500,000 votes outstanding is the estimate. A big chunk of those are from blue Pima County, something like 100,000 of the 500,000 are from Pima. So there's just, there's just hard to see where the votes would come from for him to make up that sort of margin. So that gets Democrats to 49 already with Arizona. Nevada, um, Catherine Cortez Masto is still trailing very narrowly, but she has been closing and closing. There are still tens of thousands of mostly mail ballots left to count in Nevada. She's been winning those by a healthy margin. I definitely think that she is the favorite. Obviously, we have to wait for these votes to be counted. It may only be a half a percent or a percent that she wins by, but I do think that she's more likely than not to, to win. And obviously, Arizona and Nevada gets Democrats to 50 seats, gets them the majority with Vice President Harris. And then you've got the Georgia runoff. I think Warnock is in a good position. He obviously very narrowly led the, the November 8 round. I think he won it by something like 30,000 votes, particularly if the Senate majority is not at play. If we already have those 50 seats, I do think that takes an argument away from, from the Republicans who are pushing like, even if you think Herschel Walker is this terrible candidate and terrible person, which many people do, you still got to vote for him. You still got to make sure Republicans control the Senate. And if that message isn't there anymore, I think Warnock is in a, is in a good position to, to, win his, to run his fourth election in two years and hopefully win and get a nice six-year break, hopefully. Well, amen to that. And folks can find much more analysis from you at Daily Coast Elections or where you co-host The Down Ballot, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Dave Beard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me.